All right, so I've done the math, and I've been here almost seven years. So September, I think, will be my seventh year anniversary. I've never been served at a church. This is the record, unless I get fired in the next couple of months. It would be possible. Um, this is a record. I've known John Kim when he just got out of puberty. Now he's married and he's a father of like, a, a kindergartner. It's amazing what, what can happen in seven years, right? So I've done the math and I've said, how many sermons have I preached in the last seven years? So it has been, exa it has been exactly seven years. So I mean, there were a few guest speakers and Pastor Ujin occasionally preaches. So I think I've done the math and roughly, I preach around 320 sermons at Embrace. And I think, looking back at what I preach, I think there is one common theme that runs through all my sermons. And that common theme is this. Are you really sure your faith is real? I think that's the spirit, it, that's the spirit I had when I came in, and I think that still is, that is what is on my mind when I prepare for sermons. Are you really sure, am I really sure, that the faith that we grew up with is real? How do you know your religion is true? That's, you know, a, couple, that's a sermon a couple of weeks ago. How do you know your religion is true? James in the last verses of chapter 1 is clear. Just because you are religious, it doesn't mean that your religion is real, right? William Booth, he was one of the, I think, maybe the founders of the Salvation Army. He, he lived in the latter half of the latter period of 19th century, you know, which is like 1800s. And he was alive during the turning of the century, from the, 18, from the 19th century to the 20th century. And one of, the things that he's, one of the last things that he wrote, one of the last warnings that he gave to the church is this. He says... Um, the chief danger facing humanity in the 20th century is religion without the Holy Spirit and Christianity without Christ. He says the most dangerous factor facing humanity in the 20th century, religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ. The question we ask ourselves this morning, and maybe every day, is, is your religion, does your religion have the Holy Spirit? Does your Christianity have Christ in it? How do you know? How do you know? James tells you how you know. James says the way you become a Christian, the way you know that you become a Christian is you respond to God's word. That's how you know, first of all. He doesn't say you are a Christian because you were raised in a certain culture that's friendly to Christianity. He says the word of God explodes in your, in your being. That's what he's saying. I'm paraphrasing, of course. There are two women that I was obsessed with this week in a very good way, not a bad way, right? In a good way. Two women that, was, that was, I was like YouTube fanning this week. And one woman, I don't know her name because her, she didn't disclose her name. Her name was Jen, right? And Jen, um, I think she's in her 20s now, late 20s, early 30s. 
And Jen, in her teenage years, identified herself as a lesbian. And she had girlfriends as she was growing up. One day, she said, she was looking through Facebook. And what is Facebook good for? You know, checking up where your old, old flames, you know, how your old flames are doing. Right? Unless you're blessed with married with being married to your high school sweetheart, which I know of only one couple that did that, right? Facebook, you kind of see what, what, your, what your exes are doing. You shouldn't, but you do. And she was looking up her ex, whom she dated when she was a teenager, when she was like 16 or 18. And she looked at her old girlfriend, and her old girlfriend was married to a man. She goes, what? And not only was she married to a man, she looked completely different from the person that she knew and dated. So she was, she was shocked, and number one, she was married, and number two, that she looked completely different. We know how the story goes. Why did she look, why did she look different, kids? Because she became a Christian. But she didn't know that. So Jen, Facebook, and you shouldn't do this, but she, you know, Facebook messaged her ex. Never do that, by the way. Right? Very good pastoralism right here. Can we meet up? I want to talk to you. And her, and her former ex-girlfriend said, yeah. And when, over coffee, the more Jen talked to her ex, the more we realized she's talking to a, a person that she, she doesn't know, even though they dated. And her friend gave her testimony of how she became a Christian. And because she noticed the life and the radiance that's coming out of her friend, she said, I want some of that. I want to have what she has. She prayed. She said, Lord, I want what she has. God, if you're there, I want what she has. Make me into what she has. So she was starting to turn more religious, was seeking after God. But the idea of a Bible study just offended her. You know, she was brainwashed to, by people who think the Bible is condemning against homosexual, da da da. So she, had a, she didn't have a good opinion of the Bible. She felt God moving after she made that prayer, but nothing dramatic or you know, life changing. Then one day, one of her friends says, Let's have a Bible study. She initially said no. But then, you know, how does the, the story go? How does the story go, kids? They did. They did John chapter 1 together. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He, when she read that verse and understood that Jesus was the Word of God, the logic of God, logic of the universe, he said an explosion erupted in her mind. When she read that and studied that verse, she saw Jesus Christ clearly for who he was. And after that study, she says, all their other affections fell into their proper place. That's what James is talking about. How does one become a Christian? How does one have Christianity with Christ? The word of God sets off, ignites an explosion in your soul. 
That's how you know. One of the first ways, how do you know that you're a Christian? Has the word of God done his work in you? How do you know you're a Christian? James says. The religion that God finds true is a religion that is a heart, is a person that watches his, his or her tongue. Your words are a reflection of what you think, right? Your thoughts and your words, they don't act separately. They act, your, your word is a representation of your thoughts. How do you know your religion is true? How do you speak? That shows whether you're saved or not. How do you know your religion is true? James says, do you look after the orphans and the widows? No, do you visit the orphans and the widows? Visit, visiting means not just throwing money at a problem, not just writing a check to the orphans, which is important, by the way, but true religion is, are you actually sacrificing your time and energy to look after the weak of society? Not just an intent to look after them, but actually sacrificing something of ourselves to look after the weak. Why? Christ came to look after the weak like us. How do you know your religion is true? Are you protecting yourself, defending yourself against the contaminant lies of the world? This is how you know your religion is true. This is how I know that my religion is true. Is your religion true this morning? Does your Christianity have Christ this morning? That's the question. And James is continuing this thought in chapter 2. How do you know your, your faith is true? How do you know your Christianity has, have, has Christ? The person, verse 1, James says, who holds on to the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, that person does not show partiality towards another human being. How do you know your religion is true? Do you show partiality? Another word for partiality, favoritism. Another word for favoritism is discrimination. Are you discriminating against another human being? The word partiality means, oh man, before, before I say this, oh, I gotta go back, all right. I gotta rearrange my outline. The word partiality means hold someone by their face, which means you're judging someone by the way they look, by the external factors. Right? You're judging someone by the external factors. In this particular case, James is talking about people in religious settings who are rich, making a discrimination between those who are rich and those who are poor. Showing partiality, showing favoritism is discriminating against someone on their superficial based upon what you see. In this particular context, it's wealth. But people make superficial judgments against another human being using all different factors, right? One factor is race. That's a big thing in America. People make judgments against another human, of a value of another human being based upon their race. Or another big thing in America is people make judgments against another human being based upon their political affiliation. If I wear, make Amer if I wear a MAGA hat on Sunday, I will lose church members. Even though you may not know what I stand for, just by the fact that me wearing a MAGA hat 
will make you prejudge what you think I am. And if you are the person who wears MAGA hat, if I said I voted for Biden, you'll say I'm a communist. You don't know anything about me. You don't know, you've never talked to me. But we're so quick to judge people based upon their superficial, our superficial view of who they are. That is wicked, James said. That is going against who Jesus Christ is. James gave the case study in verses, what, one, two, and, th like, verses one, two, three, right? He's saying, pretend, let's, let's do a hypothetical case study here, James says. Let's say in your assembly, there are two people who visit your assembly. The word assembly here means religious worship service. It means what we're doing here right now. James says, let's pretend there's two people who visit your religious worship service, your, your church gathering, your Sunday worship. And one guy is wearing, he's wearing rings and fine clothing. The ring during Jesus' time symbolizes wealth. How do you know you're rich? You wear gold rings. That's the status symbol, gold ring. Gold ring is the modern-day Rolex, Patek Philippe watches for men, Birkin bags for women. You know Birkin bags? Hermes, Birkin bags, $50,000. They're the status symbol of New York society, they say. How do you know that you made it? Carry a Birkin bag, right? Gold rings symbolize that you're, you're a wealthy in-person in society. And that person wears fine clothing. You know what fine clothing looks like, right? Either they have a big, annoying logo on it, like one of those, what, what is that belt? There's a, there's a Gucci belt or something that has a clear Gucci mark that like, when you look at people wearing, you go, you think about something, you're judging that people based upon, you know what I mean? You know, they wear like noticeable markings or truly rich, truly fine clothing. You don't have any marking, but you know it's expensive. And someone comes in a Tom Ford suit sits in our congregation. Well, I'm making it real to you. There's another guy, James says. He's, not, he's wearing shabby clothing. The word shabby means not only old, not only unfashionable, but smelly. Let's say a guy comes into the church wearing smelly clothing. Just by the way you look at, that, at those persons. If you say that the rich guy, the Birkin bag wearing clothes, like carrying women, or the Rolex you know, wearing man, if you go to that person and says, welcome to our church. It's God's grace that you, God's will that you're here. I find you very interesting. If you, and, and you are leading that person to the best seat of the church. You're showing, you're showing partiality. If you're saying to the man with stinky clothing and says, ew, you stink, you, don't either, you either don't pay attention to him or you tell that person to go sit by, like the, by, by the cry room and just close the door, you stink. Or if you say, you know, we don't have any seat, why don't you just sit on the floor next to me, beneath me? Then you're showing partiality. You're thinking, or well, I'm thinking, the man who's wearing fine clothes is a better human being 
than the, than the person wearing shabby clothes. James is saying that is very evil. That is the opposite of who God is, who Jesus Christ is. Maybe all of us, maybe we're not into that. Maybe, but maybe we're not, we don't really distinguish between those who are rich or those who are poor. Maybe we're, we're nice about it. Maybe we're, we're, all of us are just free from economic judgments, right? But we still judge people. Right? We look at it. We look at people. And just by the way they look, just by the color of their skin, just by the way they speak English, pass judgment. I pass judgment. Look, that kind of micro judgment, summarizing everything the person is based on one shallow quality and condemning that person. I think that's the mentality that destroys families, husband and wives. That's the mentality behind genocide, killing a mass group of people. That's the quality that destroys churches. Judging people, condemning them based on our shallow understanding of Paul is calling such things evil and thoughts, judgments with evil intent. Evil means destructive, immoral, corrosive act. Doing so, Paul says, James says, is evil. The word discrimination is a very, it's, it, it comes a lot in our society because we're very sensitive about race since last year, right? And under, it's understandably so why people are sensitive to race in America because of our history with slavery. And it is right, I think, to condemn and decry racism, cries against racism, because it's consistent with what we just talked about. Viewing, like dehumanizing someone based upon the color of their skin is dehumanizing and, and, and evil and wrong. And, I, and that's, uh, that's a proper, it's a pro outrage is a proper response to racism. It's true. But what we do, what we tend to do, is not only do we outra show outrage against racism, but some of people in our society are taking that outrage and we're judging the other race based upon the color of their skin too, right? I was explaining to my daughter last year what wokeness is, what critical race theory is, right? How one minority, the African-American like, community, historically have been experienced unspeakable racism and inequity. And I'm, and I'm trying to tell her what certain people in the media in America are trying to do as a response to that outrage, which means condemning straight white males for all the crimes against humanity. 
And my 11-year-old daughter at the time looked at me and says, Dad, what you're telling me is people are trying to solve racism with racism? I go, yeah, that's about right. Maybe I get fired for what I just said. This is what we do, right? We react, and our reaction is we do the same thing that we're outraged against, judging people based upon the color of their skin. Superficial judgment. That's wicked and wrong. That's contrary to how a Christian acts. James says, Christian who, hold, who holds on to the faith, of, faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, cannot show partiality against another human being. Once again, he says, people who have true, genuine faith in Jesus Christ must not show discrimination. So one of the key evidence of the fact that we don't have faith is if we discriminate against other people. Because discriminating, making superficial judgments and condemning others based on our superficial understanding is exactly the opposite of what living faith in Christ means. Let's unpack this. And I have time. I have 10, 20 minutes. I can do this in 20 minutes. Let's talk about what faith is. Before we talk about why faith in Christ is inconsistent with partiality and discrimination, we first have to talk about what is faith? What is faith? Hebrews chapter 11 says faith, we know, basically faith is the assurance that the things revealed and promised in the word of God are true, even though unseen and gives the believer a conviction that what he, had, what he expects in faith will come to pass. Basically, to, to simplify it, having faith means becoming conscious, know, and act in accordance to the reality that we cannot see. Faith is being sure of a reality that we cannot see. Unbelievers only react to what they see, the material world. Faith is looking beyond the material world and see there is a world and a reality that is beyond what our senses can detect. You understand? This example is James, in, in, I'm sorry, Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, the writer says, by faith, we know God created the earth. How do we know God created the earth? Were we there when he created it? Does, does God have a body or a visible, visible attribute that we can, we can confirm with our eyes that he's a creator of all things? No. We've never seen God. We never saw his, his, like, we never see how he created things, right? But the writer of Hebrews is saying, by faith you know that God did it. You are aware of a world that is beyond what your senses tell you what the world is. It is being certain about that world. It is being certain about God, who God is. That's what faith is. 
You want me to sing you a children's song? One of the favorite children's songs when I listened to when I was in college is this guy named Michael Card. That's what faith must be, right? Jamie and Hill, this is what you're going to sing to your Cho Jr. When you, when you have Hill Jr. This is what faith is, Michael Card says, to hear with my heart, to see with my soul, to be guided by a hand I cannot hold, to trust in a way that I cannot see, that's what faith must be. I know that he says there is one way, and that's Jesus in me a reality, that God is in Christ and that Christ in me. With faith, I see what is unseen. That children's song is saying, Summarizing what faith is, it is becoming conscious and aware of the world beyond your material world and see God behind it. That's what faith is. The second woman that I was obsessed about with this week, in a good way, is a woman named Rosalind Picard, like like Captain Picard, John Starr, right? Rosalind Picard is a professor of computer science at MIT. She graduated number one at Georgia Tech, got a PhD in MIT. She's a professor of computer science in MIT. She developed a software that can read the emotions of an autistic child. Nature of being autistic is you don't know what the child is feeling. That computer program interprets the emotions of an, of an autistic child. She's an amazingly like, accomplished computer scientist. She became a Christian in her late 20s. She was an atheist. She was a theist. And now she's a Christian. And this is what she says. She says, before I became a Christian, she assumed that science could solve humanity's ills. But now, she says, I realize technology can only go, like, take us so far. She says, my programs cannot cure the evil in people's hearts. My program cannot cure people's lusts. My program cannot cure, solve the divisive nature of human, human being. When she was younger, she thought she could. But now she understands, she says, there's a reality beyond what science can give. It is only Jesus Christ who can save a person. That's what she says. When she was younger, all she knew was the material world. Now she sees the world beyond the material world. The world of God. That's what faith is. Question, my friends. Do you have faith? Is God the living God the reality that is beyond what you experience every day? Do you see the God moving? Are you aware that he created the heavens and the earth? Are you aware that he's taking this earth into a specific direction? Are you aware that he's taking your life into a specific direction? Are you, do you have faith? Faith first is knowing that the reality is above the material world. That's step one. Step two of faith is recognizing Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. 
What does the word glory mean? Glory means the divine manifestation of the presence of God. When James says Jesus is the Lord of glory, he's saying not only is there a God, but Jesus Christ is, the God, is God. Jesus Christ, who's revealed in Scripture, he's God. Back to Rosalind Picard. She says she became from an atheist to a deist, to a theist. Theist means someone who just believes that there is a God. They don't know what that God looks like, but she believed, but theists believe there is a God out there somewhere. Atheists believe no God. Theists believe there's some form of God. That's what she used to believe. But now she reads the Bible and she realized not only is she a theist, but Jesus Christ is the God. Not that there is any just a God, but Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture, he is God. And when she says, when she began to understand that, her life started to change. Her life necessarily didn't change when she became a theist. Her life started to change when she recognizes Jesus Christ as God. That Jesus Christ in Scripture is God. Are you with me? Am I making sense? Are you, are you following? Question this morning, are you a theist or are you a Christian? Being a Christian means recognizing Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. He's God. Who is this Jesus? If, you, if Jesus is God, if you compare the Jesus written in Scriptures, you will see Jesus has no, doesn't discriminate against anyone. He, has, he doesn't judge people based upon their outer appearance or their religious background. He does not. That's clear from what Jesus, Jesus' ministry. He does not care about a person's externals. He does not. Who is Jesus? Who is, this? Who is God? Who is Jesus in the Bible? Is he not the God? Who, is he not God, who, who occupies the highest place in, in existence? He's God. But this God, to save us, was born born in a manger, in a smelly barn. The King of Glory was was born in a in a in a in a smelly barn with cattle. The man who occupied the highest place became the lowest, lowest person. Jesus Christ is power itself. He is. He is the engine that drives life. In this earth, he was a carpenter who made things for a living with his hands. He was a servant who washed his disciples' feet with his hands. He's the one who was insulted and was killed by man. The, the engine of existence died a, a, a criminal's death on the cross. The person with the ultimate privilege became the person with the least privilege. Jesus Christ does not care about exter externalities that you and I care about. These externalities that you and I judge people based on, judge people on, he does not care for any of it. 
How do you know? Look at the type of people that he ministered to. He ministered to a rich man, like Zacchaeus. Remember, you know Zacchaeus? He's a short little tax collector, really rich. He approached Zacchaeus with grace and kindness. He also approached the woman, by the Samaritan woman by the well. I'm sorry, he also was kind to the local girlfriend of many men, right, who was poor, right? I'm playing myself here. Who poured her, her perfume on Jesus' feet, and, she, and he showed kindness to her. He taught the rich young ruler. He also taught the Samaritan woman. The Samaritans to the Jews were like dogs. Jews looked down upon Samaritans. Jesus approached the Samaritan woman and had a conversation with her about salvation. The things that you and I judge people on, Jesus could care less. What he cares about is what is underneath. That's what he cares about. The things that we matter so much to us that we judge people on. I was thinking about this yesterday. My wife gave me a Hershey's chocolate kiss. She's so nice, right? It was Father's Day. Here you go, Father's Day gifts. Hershey's chocolate kiss. One. And I was looking at it, and I had a sermon illustration. I go, yes. The externalities that, that we're so obsessed with in this world is, 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 the, is the cover of the candy. candy. To eat the candy, you just take it off and you eat the chocolate. You throw the outer covering away. The thing that you and I are so obsessed about, our wealth, state of our education, our social status, family background, these things are just outer shells that will be discarded one day. And that's true. I'm going to be 50, half a century years old in the next two weeks. I'm entering the latter half of my century, assuming that I live for 100 years. I only have 20, 25 years most, Lord willing. And I am aware of death more than ever now. My position, what I have, what I project to have in this life, will it matter before him? After I'm dead? Will it matter I'm a, when I'm a lawyer in DC? Will it matter? No. This shell, the covering that we're, we're obsessed with, that's not important at all. Our internal reality is what matters. Jesus has come to make our internal realities, change our internal reality. Because one day, my friends, he will judge us for our internal reality. He, we, all of us will be judged. And he'll be judged on based upon who we are on the inside. By inside, I mean, has Christ regenerated you on the inside? He will judge us according to the law of God, according to the gospel of mercy. He will judge us. Jesus doesn't care about one fig about what we think we are on the outside. 
It doesn't judge us based upon our externality. If you are a Christian, you are aware of the Lord who does that. Therefore, James is saying, you worship a God who doesn't judge people on their externalities. He's coming into the world to save sinners. But if you're judging people on their externalities, where they're from, what they look like, what they wear, where they went to school, how in the world are you like Jesus, Paul says, James says? How are you like him? You're not. Discrimination is evil because it goes against the nature of who Jesus is. Jesus does not discriminate based on external factors. Because discrimination is going against who who God is, that is why it's evil. Discrimination is evil. Not only it goes against the character of Christ, it goes against the nature of the gospel. Let's go to verse... Yeah. Let's go to verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Verse 5 summarizes the gospel. What is the gospel? God choosing people, right? Verse 5, listen, my brothers, has not God chosen? What's the gospel? From the beginning of the foundation of the world, God chooses a certain people to be his. Salvation is the divine grace and the power of God. We cannot choose to be saved. We have to be chosen to be saved. I know some of you think that you made a decision for Jesus, and that that may be true. But the way you are able to make a decision for Jesus is because the Holy Spirit worked in your heart and convinced you and persuaded you. You did not look at the various sources of religious, and you didn't make a reasonable judgment that Christianity was true. Human beings don't act that way. None of us made a reasonable decision that Christianity was true. We're true. We see the reality above our reality because God chose us. God worked in us. But who did God choose? James in chapter 5 says, He has God, has God has chosen the poor in the world to be saved. Poor here means people who are either economically poor, socially poor, socially an outcast. The earliest Christians were never the rich or the powerful. I mean, there were some who were rich, like Lydia, I suppose, but most of them were the outcasts of the society. The first converts were never the Jeff Bezoses or, you know, the Harvard and Harvard-trained surgeon. They were slaves. They were people who are forgotten in society. Those people who had nothing, they listened to the gospel. And God gave them, God made them rich in faith. Once again, faith is an understanding to see their position in, in the world beyond what they see. Faith, rich in faith means God has blessed them with the sphere of his reality. The poor, the people who are forgotten, when they heard the gospel message, their eyes became open and they saw beyond their, their current predicament 
and they saw God. And by seeing God, they, became, they, they were transformed. Not only has the poor been granted faith, but the poor will become heirs of the eternal kingdom. He's saying, poor people, right now, you're economically in the outskirts of society, but one day you will inherit the true kingdom of God. Rich people, right now, think this world belongs to them. Maybe it's true. Maybe the rich do run the world. But the world that they're running is a shallow temporary one because it will fade after they die. The poor, even though you're poor, even though you may, you may not be well off in this, in this kingdom, don't worry about it. This, king, this kingdom that you're poor in, it's not going to last anyway. God has made you heirs, the inheritors of the real kingdom. And the rich are the inheritors of a falling kingdom. God chose the poor, the outskirts of society, to make, to make them his. It doesn't mean, by the way, that you're naturally safe because you're poor or you're going to go to hell because you're rich. Otherwise, many of us in this room are in big trouble. I know you. You're in big trouble if, if the rich are going to, going to hell. But what James is saying is, initially, when God chose people from the, in the world, it's those who are on the outskirts of society. But, James is saying, if you prefer the rich over the poor, aren't you going against the gospel? Who are the rich, James says. James, the rich are the ones who blaspheme your Lord. I think the rich people that James is talking about here are rich Jewish rulers who are religious, but who think Christianity is an absolute insult to God. There are people in this society, this Jewish society, who are rich Jew Jewish people. They're religious. Remember, religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity. With, they have a religion without Christ. And these rich people without religion without Christ, who has religion without Christ, they're blaspheming the name of Jesus. James is saying, wait a minute. If you are discarding the poor for the sake of the rich. You are preferring people who are going against Jesus than the person whom God may save. What are you doing? Not only that, the poor not only blaspheme, the rich not only blaspheme Jesus, the, the rich are the ones who are, who is, who's oppressing you, who's dragging you into court. You know what oppression is? Someone who like, uses their influence and power to suppress you. And the rich people during this time, they were suppressing the poor. In fact, oppressing them. Even rich people now are still oppressing the poor. Did you know that? There's a Washington Post article that came out last week. This week? Last week. And he's talking about one of, the, one, of the most, one of the most powerful corporations in America. And I cannot tell you that corporation's name because I may get fired, right? So there is this corporation that... All of us use. All of us use. And they have a lot of factories in America. 
And according to this Washington Post article, that company have like is oper- like have millions of hourly workers. That company has a mandate to fire hourly workers for mostly minorities, by the way, after three years. The people, the hourly workers working in their factories, there's no opportunity for promotion, and all of them will get fired within three years. Why? Because the management of that company thinks human beings are just naturally lazy. And if human beings are at a job for more than three years, they tend to get more lazy, and they, and they lose efficiency. So after three years, these minority people, who need the job, by the way, they're going to fire them, replace them with someone new to increase their efficiency. This company, like so many other companies, including the ones that, you know, I have so many clients, including the ones that you have, you have their things in your life. They're pressing the poor. James is saying, you're going to prefer those people against those whom God can potentially save? Doesn't make sense. Not only that, they're dragging you into court. The rich are dragging you into court, which means they're making, they're bribing judges or manipulating the legal system so that they will continually oppress the poor. I sound like a socialist. Why would you do that, James said? Discriminating another human being is going against the nature of the character of Christ and the nature of the gospel. It is anti who everything God is. Don't do it. The question is, how do you not do it, though? How do you not do it? Are you going to not do it because I told you not to do it? I say, discrimination is wrong. So don't discriminate. And you go, OK, PJ, I'm not going to discriminate. I don't think it works that way. I was like, I was showering this morning coming to, before coming to church. And I had a eureka moment, similar to the eureka moment that my wife had when my wife gave me the kiss, her chocolate kiss. You know how Jesus is condemning shallow, superficial, under, judging people based upon your shallow, superficial understanding of who they are? But I realized this. I realized even if you and I have the deepest understanding of another human being, even if we, have, we get the PhD in psychiatrics from Harvard, and we have the greatest knowledge, the most intimate knowledge of another human being, you know what we're going to do? We're still going to judge them. Because our judgment, our discrimination goes beyond our information in our heads. It is a tendency of our hearts to play God. At the end of the day, discrimination is all our temptation and tendency to play God. And we will play God even if we have the perfect understanding of all that person's pain, all the person's struggle, everything about that person. We will still want to judge that person and condemn that person. How do you get rid of this tendency to play God? By the way, that's what we're doing, by the way, when we're, when, we're, when we're discriminating and passing judgments. We're playing God, by the way. How do you not do it? You let the gospel 
open your eyes to faith in the living Jesus Christ. You've got to be aware of who, who your God is. You need to let the word transform your understanding and persuade you of who your God is so that you will be like him. You understand? You need to let him who doesn't discriminate influence you not to discriminate. You need to let him, let him persuade you that he's the only God who can actually judge and condemn and not you and me. If you're prone to judgment and condemnation, it's because you're not letting the Holy Spirit influence you to have the heart of Christ. You are ignorant of the mind of Christ. You are ignorant of the heart of Christ. That's why you're discriminating. You need to let the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, reveal the scripture. Influence you to be like him, to have his heart, so that you will not discriminate. It's not, it's a, it's a, it's a, it takes discipline. It really does. Another woman that I was obsessed with, oh, I was obsessed with three women this week. This, this other woman was Rachel Gibson, I think that's her name. Once again, former lesbian, now Christian. And she was honest. She says, I'm still attracted to women. And I still work it out to not follow my desires. But I work it out every day. Through the word, and I, and I try to work it out with God through the word every day. She still, she says, she still has those desires. She's still attracted to women. She says, but I don't follow it because I'm working it out in truth with Christ. I think that's, I think that's a very accurate picture of how you and I should live in our daily lives. How do you maneuver lust? You need to work it out with Christ through His word. Letting it constantly influence you. How do you recommend, how do you work out discrimination in your heart? Work it out with Christ through his word. That's the calling. Are you working things out in your heart with Christ? Look, last thing I'll end, I'll say this. Another eureka moment I had last week. I, mean, I had a lot of eureka moments last week. Another big eureka moment I had on Monday when I was praying. I thought to myself, PJ, because I call myself PJ, by the way, right? PJ, you could say these things on Sundays, but what matters is taking what you said on Sunday and transferring it to Monday in your personal life, right? That's what living a faith is, right? Taking what you learn on Sunday, transferring it to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and living it out. You need to transfer what you just listened to, Lord, you learned, and transfer it over to your everyday life. That's what living in faith means. If you stop here and now when I say amen and just forget about it, you're a man like, who's looking at a mirror and who immediately forgets what he looked, like, looked at. Please, I'm saying that to me too. Transfer what you learn right now to tomorrow in your workspaces, in your relationships. That's the evidence of faith. Let's pray.